Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Money Clinic with me, Claire Barrett. If you're a first-time buyer looking for a home, thinking of trading up, or are coming to the end of a fixed-term mortgage, this episode is for you. At the recent FT Weekend Festival, my colleague Nathan Brooker asked a team of experts for their predictions about where the UK property market could head next. As interest rates continue to rise, house price data continues to fall. But how much further prices might go is highly uncertain. With a general election on the horizon, you never know what potential stimulus measures the politicians might have up their sleeves. In fact, some of the things the experts had to say in this session definitely surprised me. So we wanted to share their insights with you. Take it away, Nathan. Good evening, everyone. My name is Nathan Brooker. I edit the House and Home section. I'm delighted to welcome you and our panel to our discussion on what next for UK house prices. It's been a difficult time for the property market. Zoopla says this year will be the slowest for house sales for more than a decade. But what next for prices? Joining me to gaze into our collective crystal ball are Yolanda Barnes, a professor at the Bartlett Real Estate Institute at UCL. We have Andrew Montlake, managing director of mortgage broker Corico, and the buying agent Henry Pryor. Thank you. (laughs) So let's get down to it. What next for UK house prices? Where do we think prices are going to be this time next year? Henry? 5% down. 5% down. Andrew? This time next year, 7% down. 7%. Yolanda? Uh, I agree uh, probably with uh, Henry, but in real terms. I think it's inflation that's going to strip out the value of housing over the next year, and indeed has this year. So five nominal, five real, and down seven. Okay, that concludes our session on what next for UK house prices. <laughs> You've been a good audience. Thanks for coming. You've been a great audience. Now, let's, uh, let's put it into some context, because I've got a chart. Don't groan. I've got a chart that shows you uh, that the UK property market has been something of a wild ride for the past three years. During the first pandemic lockdown... People thought prices would crash as the UK economy suffered its worst downturn in 300 years. Except prices didn't go down, they went up. The average property price increased by 20% over the next two years. And then everything changed. Uh, Yolanda, 
Much was made of the mortgage market turmoil in the aftermath of the Tras and Quasi Kuateng mini budget, but is the current situation worse? It depends which housing market you're talking about. And I think this is one of the problems of this session. When we talk about UK house prices, what the hell are we talking about? Well, we're usually talking about the things that transacted. So I think it's a very, very difficult question to start to answer because there are some housing markets which even now are still rising and others which actually have been suffering horribly (laughs) since the lockdown. Mm. So I think... You know, this whole conversation has to come become a lot more nuanced. Sure. You know, we forget that only 26% of households, I think, are actually mortgaged. Uh, a huge number of owner-occupiers own uh, outright without a mortgage. And uh, increasing numbers, of course, are renting. So talking about the mortgage market is, is becoming a really esoteric sort of uh, exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, ca- carrying on about the, 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 uh, the mortgage market, Andrew, we've had news in recent weeks that some lenders are finally starting mm. to reduce rates. How low do you think rates have to go before the market starts moving again, kind of in earnest? And what's the latest market expectation of, of when that might be? Well, if you look at swap rates, which is a future cost of, of funds, which lenders base their fixed rate on, they've actually come down quite, quite substantially mm-hmm. in the last two or three weeks or so. So if you look at five-year money, that's now back down to around about 4.7%. So they... They think that actually there might be one more base rate rise. Some people think two, but I hope it's just the one. And it looks as if lenders are starting to think, okay, now we have to start to lend again. The the differences between where we were after the trust mini budget was everyone was confused. Everyone did not know what to do. Lenders couldn't price because the markets were moving so quickly. So we're in a much more stable position now. And there is an expectation that inflation will continue to fall. So therefore, swap rates will continue to fall. So therefore, mortgage rates will continue to fall. What we're not going to see is a sudden return to mortgage rates of 1%, 2 even 3%. Mm-hmm. So the norm is going to be mortgage rates of around about 4 or 5%. And if you go back before the crash in 2008, that was sort of more the norm. Mm. And I think people are quite quickly anchoring themselves back to that 4 or 5% normality. And if you're a first-time buyer and you're looking at your cost of your rent versus the cost of a mortgage, even at 4 or 5%, then actually it's, it's, it's pretty even at that level. So I think rates don't have to fall that far in order for the market to start moving again. Um, uh, Henry, I want to bring you in. Um, talking about mortgage buyers, uh, we've seen even at kind of 4 5 6%, buyers' spending power has been kind of hammered from where they were a year ago. Have sellers' expectations come down far enough uh, or are they still expecting last year's prices? No, they're still expecting last year's prices. Buyers are expecting them to have suffered more greatly than they have and sellers are waiting for someone else to blink first before they are the first in their block or their road or their avenue to drop their price to a level that buyers are prepared to to commit at. Mm. But picking up from both of Yolanda's and Andrew's comments, you know, an awful lot of people aren't hobbled by a mortgage. 
Yep. Lots of people don't have a, more, a mortgage for the home they own. Lots of people uh, are buying without a mortgage. It's the cash buyers it's, as a proportion that seems to have held up very well. And the people that we're probably more concerned about are those who are having to adjust, having got very comfortable on a two- or a five-year fixed uh, recently, at perhaps, what, two, two and a half, yeah. who yeah. are you know, 370,000 fixed-rate mortgages are going to come to an end in December and January. Mm-hmm. 370,000 people or households are going to have to adjust their living standards based on the fact that they're now going to be facing 5% yeah. or thereabouts. Yeah. So it's going to be, a, you know, they're the people that are going to feel it. They're the people who are doing the heavy lifting for the Bank of England, trying to stop them spending money frittering as the, perhaps is, is the perception that they're spending money stoking inflation or keeping inflation alive. And everybody else is sitting there buying houses or cars or getting on with their lives um, because they don't have that funding cost. That's the big difference. I want to pick up something you said about cash buyers, because if anyone has read the House and Home front cover this morning, uh, they will have found that the story quotes one, Henry Pryor. It's nonetheless a very good story. <laughs> nonetheless, for it, it's still, it is still very readable. It is a story all about. Uh, it is a story all about cash buyers. Who the sort of these are not buyers who go into a shop with a suitcase full of cash, but ones which aren't reliant on a mortgage, uh, and they're wielding a new level of power in the current market. If you need a mortgage, or heaven forbid, you have to sell a property in order to buy, do you even stand a chance at the minute? That's. Very difficult. If you aren't able to commit to whatever it is you've recklessly offered, I often say to clients who we're looking for houses for, if you're going to upset somebody or offend somebody even with an offer that's much lower than they are hoping for, the very least you could do is at least be able to deliver on it if for some reason they accept that offer. And so people with a property to sell, other assets to dispose of in order to fund it or who haven't quite got their ducks in a row, Uh, are going very much to the back of the queue unless it's a property that nobody else seems to want. Unless you are ready to go with your house preferably exchanged and your mortgage finance organised, or ideally you are, if you're fortunate enough to be so, a cash buyer, they still wield an awful lot of power and can get and negotiate a discount. Andrew, if you are nevertheless committed to buying and buying with a mortgage, uh, because maybe you don't have tons of cash. Are there any products on the market that you think are particularly attractive? Are there any sweet spots? Um, I think, (laughs) are there any sweet spots? I think it's quite interesting at the moment. I think the mortgage market has been crying out for innovation for a long time. You've still got the same types of products you had 20, 30, 40 years ago. There's not much difference. What I do know is that there are some lenders coming in with long-term fixed-rate mortgages, which will work in a very different way to how they work at the moment. So they will be more flexible. They will be priced a little bit more competitively. So until we see that market, those products come into the market, it's a bit much of a muchness at the moment. Thank you. Um, you. You mentioned before that you know we're, we're looking at uh, rates coming down to about four nine nine five or something like that, which, as you quite rightly point out, before two thousand and eight was in you know kind of standard, yeah. kind of long term, kind of normal rate. Um, Yolanda, I want to bring in uh, you here, if I may. We've had what is it, fifteen years of incredibly low rates. Are we now entering a new era of interest rates, and how does that shape the property market? I would hesitate to call it a new era. Actually, I think what we're entering is a very old era. And uh, to illustrate that, what I I want to say is that actually 
we're kind of all living in the late 20th century in terms of our expectations and even language about housing. And the late 20th century was a very, very peculiar period in history. And if you look uh, for the previous couple of hundred years, uh, Bank of England base rates average 4%. So I'm interested here. You, you know, we're thinking about 6% rates being high now, 4%, 5% mortgage rates being normal. Well, that's really kind of back to the future, isn't yeah. it? And I think what we've got to get used to is a very different sort of, not just a fiscal financial environment, but actually a different sort of way of thinking about housing. Because talk in this sort of forum always ends up talking about people getting onto the housing ladder, you know, the difficulty of young people getting onto the housing ladder. And just this notion that housing is a ladder, I think is fundamentally flawed in the 21st century. I think it looks much more like a high platform Uh, Maybe you need a ladder to get onto it. But I think, you know, our our mentality, which has actually thought about the housing market being an an ever upward sort of escalator, actually, in the the late 20th century, uh, I think goes in in this sort of environment. And um, what we're looking at, uh, I think, over the longer term, sort of looking at, say, 2030, is much more stable low by recent historic standards, but normal by very long-run standards, uh, sort of interest rate environment. Do we think, therefore, that um, the sort of the data we had up there, the 2022, does that look like the kind of high watermark for, for property for the foreseeable future? I go back to, in real terms, yes. Mm. And I think so much depends on what happens actually to real incomes. Mm. I think that's what you're looking at is a correlation between average house prices and average real income growth. And that has been pretty dismal on both, both counts. I mean, I think, I think we're still about 7% down in real terms since 2010. Mm-hmm. I, and I think it's something people kind of feel, but we're, we're all caught up in this language of ever-rising house prices. But actually, in real terms, our houses aren't worth as much as they were in previous periods. I I think the peak was somewhere around sort of 2007. That's very interesting because if you look at 2007, so if you're asking the question, are houses more expensive now than they used to be in in 2007? Okay, we could look at nominal prices and say, yeah, they're, they're twice the price. Or you could look at real prices and say, no, they're not. But I wonder if either of those are actually perfect me- measures. What if you looked at the way that, in terms of houses, house prices being a multiple of people's earnings, you'll see they've gone from about four-ish, five-ish times in 2007 to 10, 11 times now. I, I love the idea of a perfect measure, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I smile to myself slightly. Um, I, th- I think this, this, again, is incredibly nuanced because uh, we tend to look at individual earnings when actually it's household income and yep, disposable absolutely. household income that matters. And I think, again... Uh, you know, we're talking about some real extremes in experience. And for most people, especially young people, the big affordability barrier is entry to the housing market in terms of equity. Uh, So borrowing costs, dare I say, are less important, I think, Mm. than this this issue of how the hell do you get hold of, uh, you know, a few few tens or even hundreds of thousands of pounds to, to pay your deposit. Yeah, well, the average deposit last year in London, does anyone know what it was for first-time buyer? Monty, that must be you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to guess. I'm going to say it's around about 
fifty grand. Uh, well, the thing 68. is, no, you're at sixty. Yeah, exactly. But if you're looking at the, this, there's different ways of, of, of doing it. But if you go by the UK finance data, it's one hundred and fifty thousand pounds. Wow. Because if, they, if you look at the average income, the average mortgage that was taken out, which there's, then there's the implied deposits, £150,000. How on earth is anyone going to get that? How on earth is anyone going to get fifty or £60,000 by saving? Because you're looking at you know, 10 years of saving. Yeah, it's really interesting. We, we see it's now the market for the bank of mum and dad or, or the bank of gran and granddad. Yeah. And this is really interesting stuff, but I just wanted to check if I want to throw up to the audience if there are any questions, because I... Normally during these sessions, people really want to ask the experts. They don't want to hear me. So if we come back several times throughout the discussion, <clears throat> that might be a good idea. Can we take, can we take two questions now? There's a lady here in a, in a, in a pink and uh, the gentleman at the back. If we take those two maybe and then we'll, we'll, we'll come back to a bit more of a discussion. Perhaps I'm a bit thick, but I'm, to me, I, what doesn't make sense to me and I can't quite square is how interest rates, you expect them to come down when inflation is still 8.5%. So that doesn't quite... I, I'm, I'm not following that. What am I missing? Why are interest rates, if they are the tool that is being used to tame inflation, why is it that we think that interest rates are going to come down when inflation still appears to be way past, as it always has been, it seems to me, the Bank of England's mythical target of 2%? Is that what you're driving at? Perhaps? I would think that they're a function of each other. But okay, because here's the... about expectation, which... Listen to these two, because they actually okay. know what they're talking about. Okay. But my view is that the Bank of England is giving... Historically, has had a, a, a toolbox with three things in it that they can use to deploy to try and tame inflation. And historically, they've used interest rates as the first tool they pull out. And that's what they try and smash consumer enthusiasm by jacking up the cost of borrowing money so that we all don't go out and spend it and on increased and, and, and pump up prices. The difference this time is that there are a very small number of people for whom interest rates apply, changes in interest rates affect. They're people who are taking out a new mortgage, and we've heard this afternoon that there aren't as many as there would historically have been. More people, amazingly, own their house without a mortgage. They don't care what the Bank of England does on interest rates. Previously, where everybody, lots of people were on variable rate mortgages, so if the base rate went up, we all felt it. Now, the vast majority of people have a fixed rate mortgage, so it's going to take time for them to come out of their fixed rate and find a new rate, which is going to be painful, and that's what's going to stop them, so the bank thinks, from going and spending their money. So the bank's trying to judge where they should pitch rates so that when the people come in to be affected by these rates, they don't drown them, they just dampen their ardour. Thank you. That was helpful. Thanks. I did say we would take two, and then I just got carried away with that um, <laughs> a question. Sorry, there's a gentleman at the back in, in a dark-coloured top. Hi. Uh, if you're paying presently 50% in rent on the price of an interest-only mortgage would cost you on the property, the only reason it would seem to me to make sense to buy is that in future that property would go up in price. But if you're saying that the housing is not a ladder but a platform to climb up to, then either the rent's going to go up or the housing prices are going to go down, in which case it sounds like it makes sense to wait to buy. Am I right or am I interpreting it correctly? Yolanda. Yes, uh, you are interpreting it correctly, but um, I think there's going to be continued high rises in rentals because of a supply-demand imbalance. Um, and I, th I think it's going to vary enormously, but... 
by and large, I think you're going to see rents rising so that probably by next year or the year after, they once again are more expensive than paying that interest-only mortgage. Um, I have questions here, so do be thinking um, amongst yourself, but I've got a few more to to go through. This section I've entitled Blood and Guts. Uh, because uh, it, it just strikes me as interesting. Um, I want to talk about downvaluations and gazundering and all of the kind of dark arts, which kind of kind of <laughs> comment at this kind of market. Henry, perhaps I could start with you. Downvaluations, are we seeing more of them? We're seeing lots more. They are, as far as I'm concerned, as somebody who buys houses for clients professionally, one of the most fabulous excuses you can get to renegotiate a price. It's not down valuation. Sorry, just to interrupt. Down valuation is when your mortgage lender values the property at sorry. less than the uh, agreed you, price. You agree a deal. You want a mortgage. Your mortgage lender sends out somebody, usually or sometimes they do it just on their laptop, uh, to value the property, and they are scared by the price that you've agreed, and they downvalue it to a lower figure, meaning that you have to do your maths all over again. You have to bother poor Andrew and his colleagues going to recompute the offer, um, which is a nightmare for them. But from a negotiating point of view, we're seeing more of it uh, because the market is in flux, because valuers are basically staking their both their reputation and their professional indemnity insurance on the figure they're quoting. And if they're wrong, the lender will come after them if they were negligent. So there's a big incentive for valuers to remain sober and arguably cautious, which is probably what we'd all want them to be doing in the first place anyway. So um, if you get a down valuation as a buyer, uh, you go back to the seller and their agent, you don't have to say, I've had second thoughts, I've got, I'm chickening out, I don't think, perhaps I got carried away, my wife encouraged me to bid more than I wanted to. You can say, unfortunately, a professional has come forward and said that I was drunk or somehow we all got excited and you extorted more money from me than you should have done, so I'm afraid I've got to reduce my offer. And as uncomfortable conversations go, being able to blame somebody else is the British way. (laughs) (laughs) Blame him. Uh, Andrew, I want to come to you. If if that sort of first tactic doesn't work and the seller's sticking to their guns, is there anything that you can do if you've been uh, given a down valuation? What's the, what can you do? Well, first off, I've never met a sober valuer. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting because the valuers are very... Um, interesting breed of people and they do they will first of all argue there's no such thing as a down valuation of course there is. it's, it's not just a the down value. valuation it's yeah. a correct valuation yeah. and they're trying to mirror the market they're not trying to guide the market but yeah we have our we have our disagreements a lot yeah. about about that um the only thing really and this is this is a bit a bit difficult if the seller won't budge at all then in order to challenge a valuation successfully you need to go back to the estate agent and get comparable evidence. And to really succeed, you need three pieces of comparable evidence, so properties of a similar type in a similar postcode that have actually sold for a price at the sort of the level you're looking at. Without that piece... interest rates have changed, surely that changes the the pitch entirely, right? Um, Yeah, it... Mm. It, it does. It, it's difficult. It, it's. I think the stats are about you know three percent of valuations that are, are downvalued are successfully challenged. 
Everyone. It's, As a buyer, really why would you want to? Mm. But yeah, and that's also the, the conversation yeah, no, course, we yeah. we do have that conversation yeah. with the client as well. But if the seller is not going to budge, then the seller has you can do. Sorry, forgive me. In case you are unaware, I buy houses. I don't sell houses. The seller has got one house to sell. You, the buyer, can buy anything. Mm. If they don't want to budge, that's absolutely fine. But I still maintain, and it's a minority view, that the buyer decides what a house is worth. And the seller has the luxury of deciding whether it's enough or not. Mm. I'm not anti-seller. I'm just if you are the buyer and you've got a professional telling you that the house should be you should be paying less for the house, why would you argue with them? Difficult when there's an incredible shortage of supply, though, right? Exactly. Yeah. Well, let's take the next question. Thank you. This one? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, okay. uh, for the parts of the market I've been looking at, build costs are so much, as I'm sure you're aware. House prices are flat. There's not that much margin before you'll be in negative equity if you buy something that needs a bit of work, like a fixer-upper. And price increases of build costs has not, have not really been pri- priced into uh, houses that need to be fixed up. What do you think is going to happen to that part of the market? The fixer-upper. That's, a, that's an excellent question. The kind of, we did a story on this, the sort of the death of the fixer-upper. <laughs> it, it, you know, it, it, does it still make financial sense to do that? Um, who wants to take that? And then we'll talk about the kind of regional variation as well. I think the, the fixer-upper is really interesting. And, uh, and I'd say 12, 18 months ago, we did see that completely. Uh, certainly after uh, the outbreak of the Ukraine war, um, when you saw the cost of materials and as a... As a um, the difficulties of, of Brexit and getting the right people, etc. We, we did see that completely stutter. Interestingly, we've noticed the last two, three months, those professional landlords who are looking specifically at the, doing these fixer-uppers are starting to come back. They're starting to return. They do think, actually, that now's the time they can potentially buy properties that little bit cheaper. They still have their teams that they can send in. And actually, they're looking for the future when they do think, actually, house prices might be on a downward turn now, but actually, supply and demand dictates that if you look in the future, maybe in 12, 18 months' time, house prices are going to be going up again. Just because house prices aren't rising doesn't mean to say there aren't buying opportunities now. And I'm really interested to hear that the fixer-upper is coming back into, into vogue. I, I have worries about the cost of construction and uh, the overall cost of doing it. But I think there are other ways of sort of finding value in property. Spotting the popular places, the good places, the prosperous places, the the places that are seeing increasing productivity, where especially young people want to go to, uh, is, is part of that. You don't necessarily have to be fixed physically fixing up properties, but spotting the qualities that the new demand is looking for is another way of uh, achieving that, that return in, in a stable sort of price market. Can I add two things? Absolutely. Make the seller pay your extra costs. And the deals we're looking at, we're doubling what we would have quoted, which is more than you need to, in terms of working out what we have to spend on something. So if a client's going to spend 50 grand, we're factoring in 100 grand for all the reasons you've described. And the seller has to take that pain. It's part of why prices for those sort of things are starting. You may not see them yet on right move, but you will start to see them come through on the land registry and ONS data. Be patient and don't be tempted to take the, take the hit yourself. In Kent, you're going to find just as other places like the 
like Cornwall, you know, all these seaside places that have seen after lockdowns, everybody rushing out and wanting to work two days in their office and the rest of the week in their new home with um, a garden and space and all that sort of stuff. You've seen the, the bump in Kent as other areas have and that bump I don't think is going to fall back. There are people who do argue perhaps it's not quite as fun and Nathan and his colleagues write up bits about how I went to the Cotswolds and there was too much oxygen and I've come rushing back to Hackney. <laughs> I don't think that's going to be a thing because of what Yolanda describes, which is where the market wants to be. Well, actually, I did want to come on to that kind of, that kind of idea about the regional sort of variation. So if we think about 2008 and the last time there was a kind of any notable downturn, uh, the recovery speeds were very, very geographically split, right? And they were also in terms of, they were in very different uh, specific sections of the market. Uh, what do we think is going to happen kind of next? But Yolanda, maybe you could take that. Well, I, th- I think we can take our clues actually from what's happening in the rental market. I like rentals because they are really good indicators of very fundamental people voting with their feet in terms of demand. So my advice would be is to, is to look at what's happening in a local area. And I was really interested to find that in the year of the pandemic, so the year to September 2021, uh, the biggest rental rises whilst rents in London fell by about 7% in inner London, the biggest rental rises were in Rochdale, Altrincham, Folkestone and Farnham. So sort of um, small small towns, good, kind of good places with a kind of heritage and regeneration aspect to them. And I think, I think we're going to continue to see those kind of really qualitative differences between certain places and certain types of property. So I think, you know, generally speaking, your city centre flat with no outside space is going to suffer relative to the good little, I know, terraced house or semi with a garden in a good, one of these good places. So it's it's so nuanced. It's, it's going to be really difficult to get that out of the out of the data, as it were. But I think it's going to show up in your experiences of buying, for example, Henry. Um, I think we're almost out of time. So there's only kind of one final question that I wanted to, to come at, and it's just sort of to, to call it back uh, what we said at the beginning of the session, where we sort of... I've changed my mind. <laughs> 10%. 10 percent. 10 percent. Okay, sure. So we kind of said sort of fairly modest figures, 10, 5 to 10, sort of 10 in real terms. Um, you know, if you're looking at the, 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 the great storied history of house price crashes in the United Kingdom, 2008, the 1990s was even worse. My question is, how close or what needs to happen to trigger a crash on the, on the uh, scale of 2008? Uh, you know, how close are we? Is, is, is it even a, a vague possibility? Uh, Henry, what do you think? We're miles away. We're not going to see a crash. In order to get a crash, you've got to have a whole load of property that has to be sold. Repossessions, for example, being the obvious catalyst. We, it doesn't seem to me as though we're going to see a whole load of repossessions that are then dumped on the market and sold at any price. And if we take away, if you take away just one thing from today, I think it's what Yolanda was talking about and what Nathan, interestingly, was hinting at, which is that there isn't one market. We have a house price index produced by the Nationwide and Right Move, Halifax, anybody, man, one man and his dog has a house <laughs> price index because it gets good PR, it gets written up and talked about. 
but the house, the UK housing market is a patchwork quilt. Loads of different markets, different people doing different things. Look at the fundamentals of where it is you want to live. It's a home, not an asset. It might turn into an asset, but they're, they're trying to judge the success of your prowess as a negotiator or homeowner or dealer or whatever by the national average. I've done this for 40 years. I've never seen the average house. I don't know where it is. I don't know how much it's worth or why it's worth whatever they tell us it is worth. Well, I think we better leave it there. But um, <laughs> thanks very much, guys. Thank you very much, Henry. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you, Yolanda Barnes. Our thanks to Nathan Brooker, the FT's house and home editor. That's it for Money Clinic this week, and we hope you like what you've heard. You can sign up for the House and Home Unlocked newsletter. There's a link in today's show notes. And we're always open to your ideas. If you'd like to be a future guest on the podcast, you can get in touch with us. Our email address is money at ft.com. And of course, you can find me on Instagram. I'm at Claire B. This week's episode was produced by Philippa Goodrich. Our executive producer is Manuela Saragosa, and sound design was by Breen Turner with original music from Metaphor Music. Cheryl Brumley is the FT's global head of audio. And finally, our usual disclaimer, the Money Clinic podcast is a general discussion around financial topics and does not constitute an investment recommendation or individual financial advice. For that, you'll need to find an independent financial advisor. That's all the small print for now. See you back here next week. Goodbye. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.